Join with me in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse number 32. About 80% of the people that you invite to uh, visit us here at Beach Haven will respond positively and appreciate the invitation. About 15% might resist some without being ugly. Only 5% will have a meltdown. Of course, they had problems before you ever showed up. But in any case, you demonstrated that uh, this past Sunday. God blessed us greatly. And April 23rd through the 26th is another opportunity. We'll have a harvest time with Steve Foster. And you have been keeping through the um, years a prayer list of 15 people who you're concerned about spiritually, their walk with Christ. That's your opportunity to invite them to be here, to hear one of America's finest evangelists come and share the good news of Christ. I've known Steve Foster since he and I were in college in East Texas um, just a few years ago. But uh, I've known him since then. He pastored First Baptist Snellville, worked in the evangelism office of the Georgia Baptist Convention. Uh, Steve, um, one year, had to turn down 65 invitations uh, because his calendar was already booked. Uh, Just as impressive as that is he had a policy of first come, first serve. And one church invited him of about 15 people to come and lead a, um, uh, a crusade. And a larger church of a friend of his called him and asked him to come that same date. And, of course, he lives by love offerings, and the larger church would offer a larger one. And the pastor friend urged him to come and change the date with that smaller church and even use the love offering as an incentive. And Steve turned him down. He said, I've got to go and follow my policy And I've got to have integrity. I cannot ask them to change. They only run 15. You run many, many more. But that's that's how I do it. And God has blessed him and always opened great doors for Steve Foster. We will do pre-service meetings each night at 6 o'clock and services at 7. Now, it's very, very important, though, that we put our heart into this. And I have found that if you have a heart for the world and a heart for Jesus, that you'll find a way to invite people to Christ, to invite people to hear the gospel, uh, as we will do April 23rd through the 26th. And the thing that has helped my heart through the years is to reflect often and deep upon the death of Jesus Christ. I must tell you, when I think about the wounds in His hands and feet, when I think about the dying love, when I think about the excruciating pain of mercy that He demonstrated there at the cross, I cannot help but to invite others to Him. I wish I did it better. I wish I was more consistent. But that is where our hearts can be if we will think often and long of the death of Jesus Christ. Now the problem that we have by weekly exposure to the cross of Christ is that we become desensitized to the cross. It was such a horrible thing that you don't really find very many, if any, ancient detailed descriptions of the death of Jesus, except what you find in the Gospels. The Gospels talk much longer and more detail about the death of Jesus than the other ancient accounts of crucifixions. That was a common form of punishment, of execution, by the way. But uh, the Gospels get into detail, but we've become desensitized. I mean, there, there are crosses in churches, and there are crosses around necks. There are crosses that are, uh, that are jewelry, and there are crosses on top of steeples all over the land And oftentimes, it doesn't impress us any longer. That's why we've got to be careful with such things. 
If our hearts are no longer impressed, we may need to change and renew ourselves. I think one thing that may help us to understand just how drastic the death of Jesus was on the cross is that instead of imagining a crucified Savior, imagine someone crucified a dog or a cat. Can you imagine your favorite pet being so ruthlessly treated? I have news for you today. They did that to your very best friend. They did that to the Master and Lord of all. God came to earth and lived a sinless life, and we killed Him. That's what happened. That's what it's like for Jesus to die on the cross. And I want us to look at Matthew 27, chapter 27, verse, beginning in verse 32. And I want us to divide this text into before the crucifixion, during the crucifixion, and after the crucifixion. And then I want to make three statements about it. Before the crucifixion begins in verse number 32. It says here, now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene... Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Before his death, they weakened Jesus. They had beat him in a very particular and very specific way. Roman executioners would take whips that had leather thongs that were had in them embedded sheep's bone and pottery and other sharp objects, and they brought it down upon his back, and they turned his back into ribbons of quivering flesh. Sometimes internal organs were exposed. Now this is after being on trial with the Jews in late in the evening and early in the morning with Pilate. They weakened him, and they weakened him so that as Jesus is carrying the crossbeam of the cross, up to Golgotha, he stumbles and he falls, and they have to press into service Simon of Cyrene, a North African man who helps and carries the cross the rest of the way. They had weakened Jesus before his crucifixion. Then verses 33 and 34 say, they gave him sour wine mixed with gall. Uh, other gospel authors get more specific and say it's myrrh. This is a narcotic. There were some wealthy women there in Jerusalem, who took mercy upon those who were going to be crucified, and they mixed a sedative, an anesthetic, and they would give it to the victim of the crucifixion. And that helped the Roman soldiers. They appreciated it because it would sedate the victim, and they could nail his hands to the feet, his hands and feet to the cross beam and the upright beam of the cross. But you noticed in verse number 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Jesus would not allow himself to be sedated. He would not allow himself an anesthetic. He wanted to be of his full faculties and his full mind when he was crucified on the cross. In other words, Jesus would not accept a painkiller at the moment when he needed it. And make no mistake about it, Jesus Christ felt the nails in his hands and feet and the thorns 
around his brow and eventually the spear in his side as much as you and I would because his human body was as real as any human body has ever been. He took on a real human body in Bethlehem because we needed a crucifixion at Calvary. And that's why Christmas is so important. And more than just a mere sentimental time, it's where God prepared himself to die and rise again in a human body. So that's before Jesus' death. That's before his crucifixion. Then during Jesus' death. Verses 35 and 36 say soldiers crucified Jesus. And it's very simple how they put it. It's not very elaborate, the actual act of nailing him to the cross. But it says in verse 35 and 36, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. The greatest act of love and grace, and they're still gambling. It's precisely what they're doing. Jesus wore a seamless garment underneath. That was unusual for a Jewish male, except the priests. Only the priests would wear a seamless garment underneath uh, their outer garment. And so they could not divide it and rip it into cloth and distribute it. They wanted to keep it whole. Because it was a priestly garment. Jesus is our priest before God. We don't need an earthly priest. We have a heavenly priest who's perfect and sinless. And they gambled for that. They are terribly calloused. And then in verse 37, look what Pilate did. And when they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. The Jews had manipulated Pilate into crucifying him. And here, Pilate finally refuses to capitulate or vacillate. Instead, Pilate takes the first century version of a gospel track and puts it above the head of Jesus. John and the other gospel authors will say it was written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. And this is a crossroads, and so many can read it in the major languages of the world, and it declares in a sentence the gospel of Christ, this, despite the blood, despite the abuse, because of the blood, because of the abuse, is the king of the Jews. And this is what Pilate does. But then verse 39 and 40, look what spectators do. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you destroyed the temple and build it in three days. And Jesus was talking about his body, not Herod's temple there in Jerusalem. Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. And thank God he didn't. But this is the same cat call that Satan gave Jesus in Matthew 4.3. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And if you're the Son of God, cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and God will rescue you. If you're the Son of God, bow down before me and worship and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give you a crown you can avoid the cross. And that's still the temptation today. And that's what this crowd does here. They, they continue in verse 47. They distort Jesus. Some who stood there when they heard him cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in verse 46, they say, this man's calling for Elijah. Well, no, he's not. He's not calling for Elijah at all. He's calling on God. 
and they completely distort the words of the master. And then verses 41 to 43, look what the leaders do. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. I mean, he's healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's cleansed lepers. That didn't help them. They wouldn't believe if he came down. And then verse 43, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And so leaders mocked Jesus. In their mind, it was contradictory for the Son of God and Messiah to die upon the cross. Our Muslim friends believe that today, that Jesus did not die on the cross, did not die at all. I don't know how they deal and account for the historical record here. Uh, There's no one really from the ancient world that ever doubts that he did. But these leaders mock Jesus. They thought it's impossible, it's inconceivable that God the Son and the King of Israel would die on the cross. But it may be inconceivable to some, but it's entirely reasonable to God. That's what God in human flesh does for the human race. And then look at verse 44. Even the robbers, the criminals who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. And so they watch the religious people mock Jesus and they follow their example and they always do. This is precisely what happens. And it's amazing to me. Here they are. They've committed crimes, deserving capital punishment, and they mock God on the cross. I've discovered oftentimes when people slip off into degradation and filthiness as, they, as their wickedness and evil increases in life and they make more and more foolish decisions, one of two things will happen. One, they will break and humble themselves before God. They can't bear the weight of their sin. Or they'll become more self-righteous. And they'll start condemning the righteous. And that's what you find here in verse 44 with the criminals. I I would point out to you, though, that when Jesus died on the cross, He did not die in a church between two candles. He died on a cross between two criminals. And that's where God places the hope of the world. That's where God goes to die and to show the world His love and to purchase for the world His grace. Then look what creation did in verse number 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, from noon to three, there was darkness over the land. In other words, creation begins to mourn the death of the Son of God. Creation mirrored what was going on with Jesus. They were so blind, God had to perform something supernatural in creation to witness What exactly is going on there? So Jesus and the creation mirrors Jesus Christ. It is dark in creation for three hours. It's dark in Christ now because God is pouring out the sin of the world upon Jesus. And therefore the creation is mourning because the Trinity is mourning. God is transferring the guilt of the world upon Jesus. God in fact is judging Jesus for the sins of the world. Then verse 45 and 46, it gets worse and more heartbreaking. God disowned Jesus. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, around three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is precisely what happened. Habakkuk 1.3, the prophet Habakkuk says to God, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And Jesus Christ was the embodiment of evil there at the cross. Every adulterer, Jesus became. Every lust-filled person, Jesus became. Every murderer, Jesus became. Every liar, Jesus became. Every betrayer, Jesus became. Every blasphemer, Jesus became. Every insolent, angry, rage-filled person, Jesus became at the cross. If you'll think for a moment of the worst thing that you've ever done, you need to know that's what Jesus became at the cross because mysteriously but realistically, God transferred our guilt from us to Him and the earth was dark and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 50, one of the most unusual statements in all of literature concerning someone's death. Look what it says, very carefully. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. Jesus screamed. The other gospel authors tell us it was a scream of victory. Tetelestai. It is finished. The work of the devil and reign is finished. The work of redemption, it is finished. My death is finished. He screamed it out like he did. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then look what happens next. He did something none of us can do. He yielded up his spirit. He gave his life as the Son of God he let go his spirit. Make, it, make, make this clear, and please understand it. Jesus Christ in these moments is not victimized. Jesus is victorious. He decided to die on his own. No one took his life from him. John will say in John chapter 10, verse 18. Instead, he gave it of his own initiative, is what he did. This is during, during Jesus' death. Then after Jesus' death, look at verse 51 through 53. Some remarkable things happen. God does something in the created world and among men and women to indicate what he thinks about the death of Jesus. Verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple, which was about 60 feet high, was torn in two from, what does it say? From the bottom to the top, as if a man had done it? No. From the top, 60 feet up, down to the bottom. That curtain in the temple meant no access. Only the high priest could go back there once a year. And if he did so in a way that was inappropriate, he might lose his life. And so they would put bells around his uh, garment. And every time he moved, they understood that he was still living. They would ring as he was back there, according to God's instruction. And they would tie a rope around his leg. In case he approached the holy place behind the veil in an inappropriate way, they could pull him out. Now, that veil that hides the presence of God is ripped in two, not from the bottom to the top as if a man did it, but from the top to the bottom because God did it. 
And he's opening access to the entire world for the cost of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. That's what takes place here. So the veil of the temple was torn in two. Then the earth quaked. The earth quaked. Now, Matthew doesn't explain, but I suspect, and I'm speculating here, but Satan has been the god of this world. He has owned it since the garden. He's been the god of the world. He's been the master of all. He's been the legal owner of it all because Adam and Eve legally handed it over to him. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus broke the powers of Satan and redeemed the world. He purchased it back from the court of God. He paid the fine in the court of God with his blood. And I suspect the earth quakes because Satan has to toss it to Jesus. And he's so furious about it, he just throws it at him. And Jesus catches it. The world quakes. I'm speculating, but redemption was accomplished there. And, and the rocks were split. And, and then verse 52, The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When God wants to do a great work in the future, He gives us in the Bible miniatures and previews of it. And this is the preview of that great day when He will raise all believers from the dead. Then look at verse 54. There's a saving confession. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Oh, what a remarkable thing. The religious leaders are mocking. The bystanders are distorting. The criminals are abusing Jesus, and this one man goes contrary to them all, and he says, this is the Son of God. Contrary to the vast majority of the crowd and the power structure and the intimidating government and religious forces of the day, he goes contrary to them all and publicly declares, to where Matthew can record it, publicly declares, this is the Son of God. He believes, and listen, he believes before there's a resurrection of Jesus from the dead, is what he does. At the end of this message, we'll give you the opportunity to do so as well. It may be contrary to the world. It needs to be public. It needs to be believing and trusting in Jesus. And then look at dangerous devotion, verse 55 and 56. And many women who follow Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the Mary, the Mary, uh, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. It may be that the vast majority of the crowd is abusing and mocking Jesus, but they're standing with him in his last hours. John tells us the Apostle John was there as well. There is no room for cowardice in the Christian life and Christian faith. None whatsoever, and these women have none of it. Well, what does Jesus' death mean then? I want to point out three things to you. One, God exposes wickedness. There is sin here where it should not be. There should be, there should be verses from the Old Testament of praise from the lips of the religious leaders. But instead, they mock Him. There should be confessions of faith from the bystanders. Yet they repeat Satan's catcall when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. There should be devotion. There should be love. There should be faith 
but there is not. There should be as much faith in this scene at Jesus' cross as there should be in this world today. And there is not. God comes and the world treats him this way because that's the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is desperately wicked and deceptive above all measure. Who can know it? Who can fathom just how awful the human heart is? It starts young in life. There aren't a single one of you parents that ever had to teach your children to lie. You never had to teach your children to bite other children, did you? It, 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 it's not something that's taught. It comes what? It comes naturally because that's the human heart. You have to teach them the ways of righteousness and justice and holiness and purity and truth because foolishness, the Scripture says, is bound up in the heart of a child. And that is true. They are not wet cement. That's silly and unrealistic. The truth is, our hearts are wicked. It gets worse through life unless we follow Christ. Therefore, when we come to Jesus Christ, there is a conversion that is involved. And there has to be. Our heart and souls change, so our words change. Our thinkings change. Our sentiment, our goals, our aspiration. The direction of our life changes when we come to Jesus Christ. And if there is no change, there is no salvation. There is a conversion. Rosario Champagne Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She taught English and women's studies. She was a very zealous advocate for the LGBT community. Had a lesbian partner as well. And a pastor wrote her one day after she wrote uh, an, uh, an editorial for a local paper in favor of these causes. And he asked her some questions and met with her for coffee one day and began to share the gospel with her, and Rosario came to Jesus Christ out of that lifestyle, and she says, I describe it as a train wreck. Jesus Christ wrecked with my life that I was happy with and changed it entirely and completely. Eventually, she resigned her post at Syracuse. She witnessed publicly at freshman orientation when she had the microphone. And today, she's a pastor's wife in North Carolina, homeschooling her four children. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have lied in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart. Floods of joy over my soul like a sea. Billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. The heart is wicked, and when Christ meets it, Christ wins and defeats it. And there's a conversion that takes place because he exposes wickedness. But then God keeps his word. If you've got any, nearly any copy of the Bible that has been published in the last 30 years, you probably have some stars by a number of these passages, or you've got some cross-references from many of these verses to the Old Testament because God keeps His Word. The vast majority of what takes place in the text we read this morning was prophesied in the Old Testament. Reminds me of the young lady who came to her dad and said, Dad, you gave me some bad financial advice. He said, what do you mean? He said, I use my debit card in the bank is in trouble. It's going under. He said, that's impossible. That bank is one of the largest in the world. 
She said, well, I gave my debit card to the cashier and she returned it and said, they're insufficient funds. Ladies and gentlemen, when God gives His Word, there is sufficient power and love to back every one of them up for you. And here in this text, this is what God does. that There are seven prophecies from Psalms fulfilled in this text, especially Psalms 22 and Psalm 69. From Isaiah, there are six verses fulfilled in just these verses we read uh, this morning. Uh, from chapter 50 and 52 and 53. Amos chapter 8 verses 9 through 10 are fulfilled. Then earlier, before Jesus was crucified, he told of his death on the cross in Matthew 16, 21. In Matthew chapter 17 verses 22 through 23. Friends, make uh, just understand, God planned this before the foundation of the world and told of it. 750 years before there was ever such a thing as crucifixion. The cross of Jesus Christ was not a tragedy. The cross was an achievement by God. And Romans 10:11 says, then whoever calls on the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. God will keep his word to you. If he will slaughter his only begotten son at the cross, he will come through with all the grace you need at every moment of need. It is impossible, in fact, to come before God on his terms with humility and surrender in faith. It is impossible to come before God on his terms and for God to fail to come through with sufficient grace for your need. It will not happen. God will not disappoint those who call upon Him. So He exposes wickedness and keeps His word, but then God loves the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. All the things you regret, all the things you hide, all the things you fear, exposure, all the things you wish you could forget, Jesus Christ became, and so you can forget them. Because that's what Jesus took on himself. You say, I don't understand love like that. Well, get in line. None of the rest of us do either. I can't explain it at all. Here at the cross, we find the pain of excruciating love. And the Puritan Lewis Bailey in the 17th century wrote a devotion of a conversation of his soul with Christ that I think emphasizes God's love. His soul says to the Lord, Lord, why did you allow yourself to be taken when you could have escaped your enemies? Christ said that, that your spiritual enemy should not take you and cast you in the prison of outer darkness. Well, Lord, why were you bound? Well, I was bound that I might loose the cords of your iniquities. Well, Lord, why were you denied by Peter that I might claim you before my father, Christ says. The soul says, Lord, why would you let yourself be lifted on a cross? Christ says, that I might lift you with me to heaven. Well, Lord, why would you have your arms stretched out upon the cross? Jesus says, that I might embrace you more lovingly, sweet soul. Well, Lord, why was your side opened with a spear? And Christ says, that you might have a way to come near to my heart. Jesus did not 
receive anything more than what he already had when he bled. But he offered everything to the world, to anyone who will repent and believe. And I cannot help but to repeat at this moment then, that God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May I ask, what keeps you from abandoning your life and sins and your eternity and giving it all to Jesus Christ? What keeps you from that? The Bible says repent from it. That means you reject it. You reject it and trust Christ more. And why wouldn't you then give your heart and life to Christ tonight? Why would you not fall madly in love with the Lord Jesus? Is there anything worth keeping you from Him? Is there anything greater than Him? God's Spirit's working on your heart. We're going to sing a song. And as we sing, we're going to invite you to come and to get it right with God because you can and you can today. Our staff will be standing here. You can make that decision to give your life to Christ or maybe to make it right by recommitting your life to Him or maybe make it right by becoming part of Beach Haven Baptist Church or maybe there's some other need. But quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray. And you respond. Lord, thank you for enduring what happened before your death and the awful, almost indescribable beating and beatdown that you took. Thank you for enduring what happened during your death. You could have called legions of angels to rescue you, and you told them to hush and to keep their swords in their sheets. We praise you for what happened after your death, and we thank you that heaven, all of heaven endorses it. And now, Lord, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would do a great work of grace because you've exposed wickedness. You'll keep your word, and you love everyone here today. Would you manifest that now for Christ's sake? Now, we're going to sing, and as we sing, why don't you come? Meet a staff person. Tell them your need. Go public for Jesus Christ and follow him. I'm going to finish my prayer, and when I do, you come. Blessed God, thank you for hearing us. Would you please magnify Jesus according to the worth that he purchased at the cross? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come.